This is a, um, a dangerous statement I'm about to make because the last thing in the world I want to do is um, uh, in any way minimize the, um, the service that so many people um, throw into making Gracie Van work. Uh, you know, you've, you've heard of the, the, uh, the 18 gifts that are mentioned in the New Testament about gifts of administration and evangelism, teaching, etc., well, the, the gifts that are probably the most frequently possessed on the part of the people of God is the gift of helps or service. And, and um, churches just couldn't work. Churches just wouldn't, they just wouldn't make it without people who um, exercise those gifts of helps and service. Well, the reason I say, <clears throat> I say that is because there, um, I, there are so many people around here and so many of you who give uh, so much more than a check on Sunday mornings and and um, in, in, your, in your efforts to follow after and serve the, your Savior. But there is, uh, the, at least those of us who are around here on staff know of one man who is, who is it just, it's almost, I don't know how the man makes a living, honestly, uh, in all that he does, Richard Loom. And Richard Loom is, has been in that sound booth for, Oh, so many years, and his dear wife is just about as bad as he is in terms of uh, the number of hours that they pour into this church in so many ways. I, I, I say all of that to say this. Um, did y'all know that Carol had had surgery today? And it was some pretty um, extensive surgery. It seems that the esophagus had looped somehow. Uh, now, whether that was genetic, maybe I even have that wrong, too. You know, you, you never can trust what I, I say. Um, but... It seems that, and it was, she's going to be in the hospital eight to ten days or something, and uh, she had some pretty serious surgery that was, it wasn't life-threatening, but if she didn't have it corrected, it would be life-threatening. So, all that to say, her surgery is over, and she has come through that with flying colors, and she is fine, and they asked that I communicate that to you, because so many of you uh, have known and have prayed for Carol as she anticipated and now has gone through uh, that surgery. So it's over, and now she just has to recoup. What a, what a kind thing to have people like them and so many of you in our congregation. Take your Bibles, if you will, and open them back to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. Let me read you the first two verses. That's what we looked at. I mean, that's what we uh, spent our time on last week. And we'll resume right there tonight. Um, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Of course, the question is posed for you in verse 1. The question that Paul is seeking to address is this question of, Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And uh, his reply is one of utter, complete abhorrence, which is really not represented very well in those uh, English words, certainly not. I said this last week, but the Greek words meganoitoi um, is, I mean, some of your translations may say, may it never be, which is really truer to the Greek language than certainly not. But um, the, the, the idea is, Paul is absolutely stunned that such a thought could be entertained uh, on the part of anyone. Um, May it never be. God 
God forbid. That's unthinkable. That, that's, uh, that's more true to his response to the question. And, and um, that is Paul's, I think, fundamental proposition, which he is going to discuss uh, in various ways for the next uh, 12 verses, at least up through verse 14. The, the idea that such a notion could ever be entertained in the minds of anyone who uh, had anything uh, remotely resembling a claim to know Christ. The idea of continuing in sin is, um, is abhorrent and unthinkable in the mind of the Apostle Paul. It's as if he, is, he looks at you with shock and disgust and dismay and surprise. What? What are you trying to say to me? That because you know that you have been justified freely, that being justified freely has worked in you a desire to sin boldly or to sin in boldness, that, that idea is abhorrent in the, in the mind of the Apostle Paul. Um, and with that response to the question, I think it is safe to say, ladies and gentlemen, that um, the man who raises such a question uh, is a man who has at least thus far not understood what Paul has taught in the first five chapters of the book of Romans. Um, the, um, you, you can only say something like that or ask something like that if you have misunderstood Paul's message completely. The only way you can ask a question like that is obvious that you have misunderstood um, the whole idea that Paul has taught in, the, in this treatment of justification by faith. It is, it is impossible, I think, woven, in, I mean, that is, woven into his response. I think it's safe to say it is impossible for your, our lifestyle to continue uh, without any changes after having come to Christ. That is impossible. And I think that impossibility is found in his, his response of abhorrence. Um, you know, um, Susie and I have lived in two homes in, um, in Memphis, actually in Germantown. But um, the one that we live in now is our second home. And, and we lived in one over on a cove right off of Hacks Cross, um, Anderson Coast. not important, but um, we had two different neighbors on our right side. As you walked out the front door on the right side, there were two different people who lived in that house. And they were both absolutely delightful. Delightful friends and neighbors and Christians. In fact, one of them used to go to church here. They have since left. They moved. Ha ha. Um, they moved to Jonesboro, Arkansas. And their son still goes here. And um, just, just the funniest, funniest people. And um, he worked for Johnson & Johnson and and his wife was delightful, and we had kids that were of similar ages, and they played together. And, and uh, I've never met anybody funnier and wittier than this fellow. He, he was just a delight. And his wife was just so prim and proper. And, and they, you know, moving in next door to them was a real delight because they kept their yard just so impeccably and, and um, that everything was edged and mowed and the house was always in perfect shape and the shut, you know, and painted and... It was just a, you know, really, it's a good neighbor to have when they're so delightful. And then they, they keep their home far better than we kept ours. Uh, um, but 
I mean, he worked on his, and, and you know, he was one of those candidates for yard of the month. Don't you hate those people? Um, <clears throat> but anyway, they moved. They built a house. You know, they, they left us behind in the slums, and they moved over to Oak Lee, and, and um, um, uh, we had another neighbor move in there. Now, they were equally delightful. Uh, he was a pilot for Federal Express, and, and uh, they go to Germantown Baptist, and they are, he's another funny, funny guy. I mean, I just enjoyed being with them, but I mean, from the moment that they moved in, the neighborhood went south. I mean, he had a boat, you know, one of those, uh, this, just this cheap old fishing boat, you know, my, with all due respect to those of you who enjoyed it, fishing. And, you know, cheap old, you know, bottom-of-the-line boats that, I mean, he stuck it out in the side yard, and nobody would ever want to steal the thing because it was a piece of junk. I mean, if you, if you liked the fish, you wouldn't want to steal that thing. And, uh, you know, it was a crummy old boat on a rusty old trailer. And, and, um, I moved it. I moved it. <laughs> 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 no, I said this guy was witty. Uh, <laughs> next to the driveway with his cars, you know, and he drove this old Volvo that was a piece of junk. I mean, I mean, he was one of those, you know, beginning pilots at Federal Express, you know, and, and, and you know, they're on probation for, I don't know, how long is it, Harry, 90 days or something? A, a year. Well, you don't pay him much for that first year, you know. Well, I mean, of course, after he served his time, I mean, he moved too, but, uh, but uh, anyway, um, and, and if it, if, uh, if you thought the front yard was bad, you should have seen the backyard. I mean, he had all these kids and dogs, and he tried to train his dogs, and his dogs were a nuisance. And and he would, I mean, he was so dear about the, how the dogs upset the whole neighborhood. And and uh, and then he he would. Um, I remember one night, our house was a little bit higher than his, and we could kind of look into his backyard. And about two o'clock in the morning, you know. Normally, or normal people are sleeping at two o'clock in the morning. You know, well, uh, this guy was out on his back porch with an electric saw, and and, um, and and so I got up and went out in the backyard in my underwear, and and I knew it was Dave, and I said, Dave, Dave, and he said, Were y'all sleeping? <laughs> And I said, yes, David, it's 2 o'clock in the morning. And he said, well, my schedule gets mixed up, you know, I'm flying. And I said, oh, you know, it wasn't a bad thing between us. I mean, but, you know, the poor guy, he turned, immediately unplugged, turned off the lights and went inside and, you know, went to bed. But, but the, the point I'm making in that whole uh, bizarre thing is that the nature of the outsides depended upon who lived inside. Everything on the outside changed when those on the inside changed. You took out this bunch and put in another bunch and the outsides changed. Radically. The point I'm making, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you can see, it is impossible, it is unthinkable to suggest that the insides of me would be radically changed by grace and the outsides would not be affected.
that's just unthinkable. Of course, if the insides change, the outsides change. Having to do with whoever it is who lives on the inside. That, ladies and gentlemen, is a fundamental principle that can be established, I think, simply on the Apostle's response to the question of verse 1. It is, you don't, you, you don't mean that. I mean, it is such a negative response is all I'm that we can say the very idea that coming to Christ would not change us on the outside would be something that simply represents that you have never quite gotten it and still don't quite understand what this gospel of grace does. What is the result of grace? Is it to allow us to continue in sin? Oh, no! No! It is to deli- the, the, the result of grace is to deliver us from the reign and the bondage of sin. A, a, a man who is under the reign of grace, ladies and gentlemen, cannot think like that or live like that. That is a distinct and utter impossibility. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm basing all of those comments that I've made up to this point simply on that opening couple of words in verse 2. The question is, can I continue in sin if I've experienced grace? And Paul says, you've got to be kidding me. Surely you can't be serious. Make an oi toy. And so that, that's got to shape and frame, ladies and gentlemen, how you and I understand the results of grace in the life of those who receive it. Now notice he goes on, um, he really answers a question with a question. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Now gang, um, may I say that um, the we who died to sin, those five words, are as controversial as just about anything in the Bible. I know you may not know that, but entire movements and denominations are, 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 are built up around those five words. Uh, maybe you've heard of the higher life movement. Maybe you've heard of something called the Keswick movement. All of those things came from how those five words are understood. Now, um, every now and then... It is always uh, my pleasure, <laughs> uh, and to your boredom, to, um, uh, to give you a Greek lesson. Because you pay me a lot of money, uh, and I have to show you every now and then that I have a decent education. So that's the only reason I do it. Uh, it's certainly not, uh, that's, that's not true, I hope it's not true. But, and I know some of you wonder sometimes, now wait a minute, Jimmy, why, why are you... Why are you boring us with the tenses of the Greek verbs? 
Because, ladies and gentlemen, I am here to tell you, your whole view of, uh, no, of sanctification depends upon how you understand the tense of this Greek verb. And, and how you understand what Paul is saying depends upon how you understand that word died, for instance. Um, let, let, let me just, let me leap ahead and we'll, we'll come back. But, um, um, this, this died to sin, um, has been, it has been suggested that it, what is meant here is that because we have died to sin, we are, as the people of God, more and more moving away from the domination of sin. How do you like that position? That sounds pretty good. It's utterly impossible. On this text, because of the tense of the Greek verb, now, again, I, I, I don't, I hope this doesn't bore you, but guys, Paul uses, and he uses it not only in verse 2, but he uses it in verse 6, verse 7, verse 8, verse 10, and verse 11. He uses a tense of a Greek verb. It is called the aorist. There is not a, a, an aorist tense in the Greek language, excuse me, in the English language. There is in the Greek language. And the aorist tense describes an action that was begun and completed in the past. Um, maybe this will be more readily understood. It describes a snapshot action. One and done. <laughs> um, it is begun and completed in the past. And all of the verbs that follow... Not all of the verbs, but the verbs that he's uh, predominantly using are in the aorist tense. So what is Paul describing? He's describing something that is not ongoingly taking place in the life of the believer. He is describing something that has taken place, is done, it was begun and completed and attained and finished in the past. So to read it like we are all gradually moving away from sin would be a distortion based simply on the text of the Greek verbs. Now, the reason that we come up with things like, well, um, I'm going to have to go back and uh, tell you what I think it does mean and what I'm convinced it means uh, but I'm just trying to illustrate that it is important. Those little things like tenses of Greek verbs are important because they change your whole understanding of what's being said. Now, go back with me. And, and uh, how shall we who died to sin live um, any longer? Um, just, again, um, that, that how shall we it is really different than that in the Greek language, and I, 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 I'm not, I hope I'm not boring you, but it's, um, if, if I were to render it to you exactly how it's found in the, in, the, in the Greek New Testament, it is something like this. We, how shall we? It's as if the apostle says, we? 
一名，一名的 people behind the squad having been justified by faith will live in sin. It's a it's an emphasis that is found on the the, the plural pronoun we. It is emphasized and made emphatic all the more to demonstrate that Paul is horrified, absolutely horrified, that someone would have such a notion.、Um, we being who we are, the whole emphasis is on our uniqueness, our our specialness. People who、uh, understand who they are. And and what position it is that they they enjoy would never ask a question like that. If you we, how can we? Is it is to underscore the unique and privileged position and status that we enjoy, having been justified by faith. The thought, and, and I say this with some measure of reserve, is beneath us, based on who we are in Christ. Paul's emphasis, guys, I am convinced, in this, how shall we who died to sin living on? His emphasis is on what has been. To us, and what is our position, our status? Not what we have done, but what has been done to us. Christ's death and resurrection has brought the reign of sin to an end. In our case, and that's what he mentioned in chapter five, comparing and contrasting the reign of sin and the reign of grace. Through the death and resurrection of Christ, the reign of sin has been brought to an end. And and know, knowing that that the reign of sin is now dead, how could you possibly think that we would ever want or would ever think? About going on in that sin, gang. If if you're a believer, if you have been justified by faith, if you are in Christ, then you are done. You are done with the reign of sin, and are now living under the reign of grace. So.、Um, How in the world、um, could anyone live any longer in sin, who now lives under the reign of grace? No, no, no way.、Um, guys, if we are delivered from the reign of sin by Christ, we can't go on living in its domination. That I think. Is the essence of his reply. How can we, who died to sin, that is, I tell you what, take your Bibles if you will, and 
flip over with me just to see a, a quick text in Colossians 1. <clears throat> this, is, this is something I think you all... This is a text I think so many of you love. Um, it's verse 13 of Colossians 1. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of His Son of His love in whom we have redemption through blood. You know, um, is there not other translations of that word conveyed? What words do you have? The, huh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm wrong then. I thought there was... Does anybody have the word transferred? I thought that was in there somewhere. Transferred us from the power of darkness into the kingdom of His Son and love. It is like there was one kingdom under which... Uh, um, over which had, domi- uh, dom- had dominion over you, and now you've been transferred out of that one into another one, into a kingdom. You've been transferred to another kingdom. Not, one used to be darkness, now this one is light. Gang, the moment you and I became Christians, we became completely dead to the reign of sin. Now, here comes the rub. And here, here's why it becomes so, I think, controversial and highly debatable among Christians. Okay, Jimmy, this is what you just said. The moment that I became a Christian, I am completely dead to the reign of sin. But Jimmy, I still sin, and I'm still tempted to sin. How do those two line up? Um, well, first of all, guys, Paul is not teaching us by saying that, that sin is dead in me. That's not what he says. He doesn't say sin is dead in me. He says, I am, I, I died to sin. He is not teaching that we are unable to sin. It, it's, it has to do with differentiating between what is true of my position in Christ as a fact versus my experience that I uh, have on a day-in and day-out basis. Paul's concern here is to describe your position as Christians. And if I could use just words that might be more understandable or helpful, I hope, it is this idea that sin no longer reigns. And he's going he's gonna to develop that later on in the chapter. It does not, I am not under its dominion. I've been transferred from that. I live under the reign of grace. I do not live under the reign of sin. He is concerned that you understand your position. Uh, either we are under the reign of sin or we are under the reign of grace. Um, but because of this this great work of redemption that can be summarized under the heading of the doctrine of justification by faith alone, uh, we have been taken entirely out of the realm, the reign, and the kingdom of sin. Now, can, can you get a little bit of a taste of how utterly abhorrent it would be for someone to then say, 
well, I'd like to go on living in sin. And guys, anybody, anybody who has done any measure of counseling in the Christian church is frequently, I shouldn't say, I don't want to overstate, I'm a master of that, um, but is commonly confronted with those who, who sit across a desk from them and say, I am absolutely, and I, I could give you details. I, well, you know, I'm, I'm, um, I'm into this, I'm into this, I'm into this. I've done this, I've done this, I'm doing this, I'm doing that, I'm doing the other, I'm doing this, I'm doing that, but I'm a Christian. Now, at that juncture, the Christian counselor is in a pretty difficult dilemma, impaled on the horns of a dilemma, because... There is no way that I can tell whether they're telling me the truth or not. But I am saying, doctrinally, biblically, and I don't want to say theoretically, but in terms of principially, that can't happen. That simply cannot happen. Because I've been transferred out of the reign of sin into another kingdom where grace reigns. And because I have, um, the idea that sin has continued to have dominion over me is unthinkable. Um, Let me just read you a couple of quick things that this text is not teaching. It is not teaching that you and I no longer have sinful inclinations or sinful desires. It is not teaching that. Now, the fact that we do is pretty sad. But, um, we do, don't we? Sin still has an appeal, does it not? But this is not teaching that sin no longer appeals to us. It's teaching that we've been transferred to a new status, a new position. This text is not teaching that we no longer ought to sin. That's not what it's teaching. This is not a text which has oughtness. I mean, he'll get to that later on. But um, basically, his, his appeals of oughtness come later. This is not one of them. This is, this is definitional. This is describing this position that you and I enjoy as being dominated by the reign of grace. And even in the midst of that, I still have inclinations towards sin. Ain't that the dickens? But ain't it the truth? Why is it that that sin is still so enticing? Well, all I'm saying is this this is not a this is not a text that's telling you what you ought or not do. I've already mentioned it does not teach some kind of process. It is not describing that you and I are slowly moving away from sin. And, and that is definitively not what's taught here based on the, era, the, the tense of the Greek verbs. Um, it is not teaching... And by, by the way, all of these positions have come up around the Christian globe, you know? Uh, it does not teach that we have renounced sin somehow. There again, the emphasis is not on what you have done, but it uh, is what has been done to us by grace. Um, 
it is not teaching that there is no longer any guilt associated with our sin. I mean, that is when we've sinned. Yes, there is. If you um, go out and rob a bank and you feel guilty about it, you ought to feel guilty about it. That's not what this is um, um, teaching us. Nor does it teach, nor is it exhortative. It is not calling us to arrive at deadness to sin. It's not, that's not what this text is doing. It is simply describing the position of the redeemed. Simply, I, I shouldn't say that. Sim, that's not simple. But it is describing the position that you and I occupy because of our solidarity and our union with Christ. I live under the reign of grace. Guys, there are only two possibilities available for every person who is alive, for every person who is in this room. You are either in Adam or you are in Christ. And if you are in Christ, it is not merely that we are forgiven our sins. That's true. But that's not what this is teaching. It is to tell us that we have been transferred out of a kingdom where sin had dominion and we now live in a new kingdom with a new king. And that reign is powerful. So powerful that it has it is guaranteed to produce some results that are visible, external, and quantifiable. Um, and thus we find statements like, By their fruits ye shall know them. That's right. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, because when I get transferred out of a kingdom of darkness into a kingdom of light, that transfer guarantees that things begin to change and ultimately they'll show up on the outside so that others can see that my king has been changed. We'll come back and pick it up at that point next week. Our Father, I pray that you will help us all think